Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to this episode of Sibylline's podcast. This has been a pretty tumultuous week, I think you'd all agree, with, as we record, the results of the US election looking highly contested. A situation that, it seems, is likely to last for some time, as legal challenges are mounted in states with razor-thin margins between Biden and Trump. This poses the threat of escalation as tensions mount, though so far events have at least been calmer than many feared. Long may that continue, despite inflammatory comments. We discussed the immediate implications in this week's pop-up webinar, which I hope many of you managed to catch. But we'll be covering this further in next week's podcast as events continue to settle. That episode will look at both immediate and longer-term implications for the world through the next few years. So stay tuned for more on that. We have also seen increased lockdowns across Europe as governments continue to grapple with mounting healthcare issues. This remains more of an issue for the developed world, but the economic ramifications will extend far more widely, of course, impacting even those states that have shrugged off the virus so far. Notably, both France and Austria also saw jihadist incidents in the run-up to lockdown. A reminder that this threat has not gone away, but we remain particularly concerned about the rising right-wing as well. Security forces are certainly facing significant constraints at present. This undoubtedly offers an opportunity for threat actors to take advantage of the situation. However, this week, we're going to look in more depth at two other slow-burning but important and often overlooked issues, given everything else that's going on. First of all, Israeli-Arab relations, which have been evolving markedly in the last two or three months. And then we're going to go on and look at China's five-year plan, which is a topic that's of vital concern to businesses operating both in China and abroad. So joining me first to discuss Israeli-Arab relations are Phil and Eloise. And Phil and Eloise, welcome and thanks for joining us. I think people should be aware the UAE, Bahrain and Sudan have in quick succession normalised relations with Israel in recent weeks, in deals mediated mostly by the US. The Abraham Accord, signed on 15th of September between Israel, the UAE and Bahrain, whilst driven by the US, already had their roots in existing cooperation on security and defence matters, as well as discrete business deals and diplomatic relations. However, Sudan's deal with Israel illustrates the pressure facing those countries from the US to formalise ties. Nevertheless, current international developments with regard to the US presidential election, the ongoing Iran issue and existing regional tensions reduce the already limited chances of a similar flurry of diplomatic activity in the coming weeks. So again, joining us to discuss are Phil and Eloise, and welcome uh, again, and thank you for coming on the, the podcast. It's good to have you here. And why have we seen these agreements now, and why in such quick succession? Hi, Justin. Yeah, thank you very much. So I think these agreements have been quite interesting because they're a combination of, as you sort of said, alluded to, these sort of slow-burning issues, but also more immediate, pressing ones. So there are a lot of underlying factors, and I think you can, you can say from quite early on that the UAE and Bahrain were two of the more likely candidates for normalisation. Obviously, the UAE has had uh, sort of discrete business deals with regards to security and defence, and Bahrain um, has also enjoyed unofficial ties really since the 1990s. But then more recently, you've got issues obviously like the US presidential election, where Trump desired some notable foreign policy wins, I guess you could say. But also, obviously, in the last couple of years, we've seen really rapid developments in tensions between the US and Iran. And this has actually, I think, opened quite a lot of doors for the Gulf states in particular, who were very concerned, obviously, about the rise of Iran and potential hostility, similar to what we've seen in 2019. So I think this combination of, of these sort of longer term trends, as, as well as potential pressure, or a great uptick in pressure from the US with regards to the upcoming election, or obviously the election that's now happened, were, were really important in these, this sort of flurry of diplomatic activity. Um, I guess you could also say, it's a slightly more cynical view, that for the US it also shores up these, these arms deals, particularly at a time when the Democrats are becoming increasingly critical of USAID states like Israel, Saudi Arabia, particularly due to their end use. Yeah, I was just going to say, you mentioned earlier on, Justin, that Sudan uh, was, you know, the latest of uh, the Arab nations to, to come to a normalisation agreement with Israel. And so I think Sudan's interesting for a variety of reasons, um, but mainly because it encapsulates some of the themes that um, Eloise has discussed there, but also the um, sort of pressing economic circumstances induced by the pandemic. So 
if we think about uh, Sudan's circumstances, effectively since 1993, it's been locked out of a substantial portion of, of global trade uh, and indeed um, international financial assistance from multilateral lenders as a consequence of being on the US state sponsors of terrorism blacklist. And really, when Sudan went through its revolutionary period last year, as, as some of the listeners may remember, uh, and uh, had a transitional government installed, um, effectively that, that government's overweening priority has been removal from the state's sponsors of terrorism blacklist. Um, and obviously since the start of the pandemic, that's become even more acute because of the economic conditions that um, are now prevalent in the country with spiraling inflation and so on. And so what we've seen with uh, the US sort of bringing Sudan to the table with Israel uh, and then subsequently establishing a, a formal diplomatic relations is you know, Trump's desire for a clear foreign policy win combined with a certain amount of, of economic leverage over Sudan. Uh, and as a consequence, you know, Sudan has taken a step which perhaps 12 months ago seemed relatively unlikely in recognizing Israel where, given that Sudan is quite a, a conservative Islamic country in, in areas as, you know, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict has been something which has probably united more people in their dislike and condemnation of, of Israel in the past. So yeah, what we've, what we've seen recently is a real brazen attempt by the US to, to force its force through these kind of foreign policy victories prior to the election using whatever means it has available and uh, you know as I say the, the economic pressure of the pandemic combined with the status of Sudan as a state sponsor of terror has meant that you know the US has, and Trump specifically has had the leverage to get that foreign policy agreement. Um, whether it holds in future once Sudan's transitional government ends is, is another matter but um, we can kind of pick that up later I think when we're looking a little bit further ahead. Well, and that's an interesting point. You say the transitional government itself offered that window of opportunity. Certainly, I remember Sudan being used um, to support moves against Israel, especially in terms of logistics operations by uh, uh, for shipping of arms and things like that in the Red Sea. So, as you say, it is a that was a sharp reversal. I guess the opportunity was there, the momentum's there. And Eloise, as you were saying, of course, a, a wide range of reasons. I guess in the Gulf side, you know, it's more more maybe anti-Iranian than pro-Israeli, isn't it? But uh, that's uh, obviously quite a, a range of factors. So I guess with that in mind, are we going to see similar normalization deals with Israel elsewhere? You know, is, is Saudi next? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. It's something that obviously everyone's, I think, somewhat expecting. I, I certainly think, as you said in the introduction, that we're not going to see the same sort of flurry of activity that we did in the run-up to the presidential election. But I think it's safe to say that if there are going to be future candidates, it's obviously the Gulf states that remain the most likely. Obviously, we've got um, Egypt and Jordan that already have existing formal relations with Israel, although probably not as warm as the UAE and Bahrain now. But Saudi Arabia is obviously uh, a sort of big ticket item for, for Israel if it were to normalise relations. But I think Saudi Arabia is an interesting one because it obviously holds a huge amount of symbolism for the Islamic world. And I think there are broad sections of the population and some, some people within the, the ruling establishment as well that would see it as too much too soon. Um, and we've already seen this with some of the sort of liberalizing reforms under the Crown Prince. And there's obviously been, been some negative reaction to that. Um, in particular, there was obviously a stabbing in Riyadh at a cultural festival. So I think the, the sort of idea that it could be too much too soon is really weighing on the minds of Saudi Arabia's rulers. I think another interesting country to examine would be Oman though. I think obviously the, the new sultan came in in January this year. There's a new foreign minister just in the last couple of months who is likely to retain the country's sort of slow approach to diplomacy and a more balanced approach to regional events. And obviously Oman has previously acted as sort of a, a diplomatic bridge and an important back channel for not only the sort of the Gulf states and Qatar in the ongoing um, blockade, but also with the US and Iran with the negotiations of the nuclear deal in 2015. So I think Oman is in some ways more interesting than Saudi Arabia, just because I think Saudi Arabia has to be slightly more cautious. Um, obviously, Oman reacted positively as well as cautiously to the recent Abraham Accords, but it also has relatively good relations with Iran. Um, so given that it has tried to sort of avoid being uh, sort of too swayed by particularly the US, but also major regional powers, the, the question for Oman will really be what can it get out of a deal with Israel? Um, and obviously, if we see further slides in economic conditions for the new sultan in the country, I think that's one pressure point that the US could potentially leverage. Um, but yeah, Saudi Arabia does feel, feel like it is going to be the next candidate. 
obviously Bahrain's normalization with Israel came with the tacit support of Saudi Arabia because Bahrain really can't do anything with its foreign policy without the authorization of Saudi Arabia. So it does feel somewhat inevitable, but I do think it will, uh, certainly the Crown Prince will want to bide his time just to make sure much of the population is on side. Yeah, and it, you know, of course, a, a very significant step, I think, if we'd said a few years ago, this was likely, uh, I don't think anyone would have accepted that. I think more of a challenge there. And of course, Oman, the Switzerland, the Switzerland of the Gulf. So it's how much they actually want to, you know, can jeopardise uh, that position away, as you say, of neutrality and especially their ability to channel talks with Iran, uh, I guess, will, will evolve markedly if this goes forward. But what other longer term implications are there of these deals that we can identify at this point? There are two definite sides to this. On the plus side, we're likely to see, and we already have seen in many respects, growing cooperation in sectors where there already was um, maybe some more discrete deals, but technology, defence, cyber. Um, and we've, we've also seen um, agreements being signed with regards to construction projects, energy transportation deals. But uh, there, there's a growing momentum with regards to concern about a potential arms race. Obviously, this is um, discussing the controversial sale of um, F-35 fighter jets. And this was a real sticking point for, for Israel and the UAE. The UAE obviously really sought this sort of competitive edge, but obviously Israel retains the right to have the edge over Arab nations. So um, the fact that this is an issue of prestige as much as security could become a bit more of a concern in the longer term, as well as the potential for domestic unrest. But I, th I think there is certainly scope for much greater cooperation with regards to technology and cyber. And these are areas where we've already seen some developments that have actually uh, that have actually taken place pretty rapidly in the aftermath of the signing of the deals. And as I sort of alluded to earlier, these deals with the UAE and Bahrain have already well overtaken, in some respects, cooperation between states such as Israel and Jordan, um, where tensions there seem to be rising rather than thawing. Yeah, I guess I'd say on this, you know, when we're looking at sort of longer term implications, it's, it's probably best to, to divide the business and the, the political. So, you know, on the, the business sides, as Eloise rightly alluded to, progress has been actually pretty swift in areas where particularly the UAE and Israel have, uh, you know, mutually recognised goals. So one of the key benefits for Israel from the bilateral accord with uh, the UAE is the opening of channels between Gulf finance, which is obviously pretty considerable, and um, Israel's status as probably one of the world's leading tech startup locations. So one of the first bilateral agreements signed following the, the recognition back in uh, August time was the reduction of, of barriers in the financial sector. So I'd expect to see over the course of the, the coming years a, a fairly robust um, stream of of capital flowing from uh, the Gulf into um, Israel's tech startup scene, and obviously you'll be aware that that a lot of that has its roots in you know companies either with contracts or that have been bought with the Israeli government or that have been born out of um, individuals' experiences with the Israeli government. So this is the kind of investment that would have been politically sensitive, and indeed it will still be to a certain extent, but would have been extremely politically sensitive before recognition was formally agreed. So yeah, from Israel's perspective. There's a lot to be said for uh, for access to, to these new finance streams, um, and then uh, probably another area that I'd emphasise would be the pr the prospect of of offshore joint ventures uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, where um, you know, courtesy of uh, the Abraham Accords, is Israeli companies may now be able to launch partnerships with uh, UAE-based firms that have that kind of expertise, particularly in you know drilling for gas and, and so on uh, in the Gulf. So you know, on this. Point uh, we've seen already an announcement that uh, the Dubai-based DP World Shipping giant is uh, entering a, a bid with an Israeli firm to operate uh, the port at Haifa, which is Israel's main um, you know, trading location. So, yeah, there's, there's already been relatively swift progress in these areas where there is a significant degree of, of overlap um, with regards to, to Emirati and, and Israeli business interests. And probably where progress will be slow will be on things like um, travel, for example. So obviously we know that um, flights, paths effectively have been agreed between um, Israel and, and the Gulf as a consequence of, of recent agreements. But obviously with the impact of COVID, any benefit there is likely to be delayed somewhat. Yeah, and uh, in a way a good time and a bad time, isn't it, I guess, with COVID going on. And that power play for hydrocarbons in the Eastern Mediterranean gets 
steadily more interesting. I think obviously I, the eyes are on the, the Turkish explorations, but of course it's such a complex maritime area. I think anything that changes the dynamics there could have further implications. So I think certainly, certainly an issue I know that you're keeping eyes on. But we mentioned the US presidential election earlier, and, and of course it's always been a theme of the Trump presidency, I think, to improve and harden relations with Israel and support Israel, of course. So what are the implications of the election outcome, uh, given that the US has really been the driving force for this? Uh, we've identified, obviously, amongst all of these other factors, like Iran, like the economic factors, like the change of governments, uh, the change of priorities, maybe, for some of these countries. But what does it mean? I mean, if, are we going to see a continuation with Trump? Or are we going to see a continuation with Biden? Will it change under Biden uh, once we eventually know the result of this process? Yeah, this is another really good question. I think uh, it's the million dollar question as well in many respects. I think firstly, while this is not my area, it seems like we're in for quite a bit of disruption in the next few days, certainly, if not weeks, with regards to the outcome of the presidential election. But I do think this is another factor um, weighing on a potential lack of forthcoming agreements with Israel, certainly in the coming weeks and months. With disruption in the US, I don't think we're likely to see a particular push for any new deals, although pressure is, uh, is, 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 is there latent, but um, we're certainly not likely to see the same pressure that obviously Trump put on these states as, uh, as he sought a foreign policy win. But I think even beyond the coming weeks, there are bigger question marks. In other words, how will the new administration deal with Iran? And I think what we've seen over the last four years was quite transactional relationships between Trump and the Gulf states. And they saw Trump as a real bulwark against Iran. But actually, Trump even has come out and said that he would renegotiate a deal. Um, it would probably be a much tougher deal than obviously Obama's, but he has come out and said that he would bring Iran to the negotiating table. Biden has obviously said the same. And I think I think our prediction um, will hold that if, if Biden does secure the presidency, that he would pursue diplomacy much more than Trump. But obviously, Gulf states such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE, but also smaller Gulf states will be concerned if the US isn't seen as being such a, um, a sort of state against Iran um, in favour of the Gulf states. And interestingly, I think another thing that we'll start to see, and we already have done, but is this sort of US global drift um, under Trump, but which is also likely to occur under a Biden presidency, which could then see a troop drawdown in places like Bahrain, even Qatar, where they've got a base. So that could leave these states more vulnerable, which could actually act as a, um, a bit of a catalyst for other states such as Oman potentially seeking, seeking or not necessarily seeking, but coming under pressure from the US and, and accepting that sort of pressure to normalize relations. So I think actually one, the US election obviously will be a huge question mark, but also then how the, the presidency deals with Iran, certainly in the next year. Um, and a point to, to really look out for is um, the Iranian presidential elections, which are happening in June next year. And we're, we're predicting essentially that the uh, more conservative hardliners are likely to, to assume the presidency after Rouhani. And, it, and that will really alter the dynamic as well there. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating, isn't it? That when you put pressure on an adversary, of course, they don't always do what you want them to do, you know, when faced by a dilemma. So, yeah, it is. it will be very interesting, I think, next summer to see how that evolves. And certainly, uh, whichever president we're going to get is going to have it firmly on their plate, aren't they? I think this was the year that we looked at considering starting with a war in the Gulf and certainly saw an exchange of fire that was looking fairly unpleasant back before the virus took over life as we know it, wasn't it? So, um, I guess, parked but not forgotten. Um, Sorry, Justin, if I, if I could just jump in on, on the US uh, situation. Um, I, I guess one thing I'd, I'd like to sort of bring out, given where we stand, obviously, with Biden looking like he's on, on course for a victory, although um, that's, that's still in doubt. I think there, there might be a temptation um, when we're talking about sort of disruption to US policymaking in uh, the MENA region that a win for Biden might mean a kind of stall in, in these types of bilateral arrangements between um, Israel and um, you know, it's, it's previous adversaries in, in the Arab world. But I, th I think it would probably be unwise to, to paint Biden as, as too much of a, a kind of anti-Trump when it comes to, to policy in the region. So, um, you know, one of Biden's uh, and indeed the, the Democratic Party's traditional basis of support has been amongst liberal Zionists in the US, many of whom are, are very supportive of the type of agreements that we've seen in the Abraham Accords and, and subsequently with uh, Sudan. So there could very much be room for, for more of these uh, under a, a Biden presidency. They probably wouldn't be 
pursued with the same kind of, of cynical and sort of forthright pressure that we've seen, you know, in the months prior to, to the November election by uh, Trump's White House. But, but nevertheless, there's, there's definitely there's definitely a political angle which would, would play in Biden's favour if he were to, to continue to try and broker these kind of agreements. So, yeah, I think that's probably just worth considering that there's, uh, there's, there's definitely scope there for, for more progress on this front, regardless of, of who wins um, over the next week or so. It's just that Biden might experience a certain amount of disruption before he gets around to addressing this issue again, given the number of other things that are on his plate, like Eloise rightly alluded to, the situation in Iran. Yeah, and I think that's one of the trends we explored uh, yesterday was actually how much foreign policy direction would really change for the US given everything else going on. Uh, and although I think we might see it change in things like green energy, won't we, that maybe uh, these sorts of trajectories won't change. I guess we've got used to a set of regional dynamics, haven't we, in the Arab world? Uh, it's sort of been predictably unpredictable in its own way, hasn't it? But we've been quite used to a set of a set of rules and, and Phil, I think you mentioned earlier about the tech investment. And we, we all know that Israeli security companies are regarded as the best in the Gulf region and uh, obviously doing quite a lot of work in uh, Gulf Arab countries quietly to support their infrastructure, security and other things. Um, obviously in part because of a shared worry about Iran and also because of the respect for just the Israeli capability, especially in technical areas. So you know, this has been going on for a while, but Will the agreements therefore have an, have an effect on these regional dynamics? Well, are they the, the recognition of an underlying reality or is this going to change the way that we start to look at the Arab world, the Middle East and Iran? Yeah, on, on that, Justin, I'd say that to sort of touch back on what we were discussing earlier on with, with Eloise's contribution on the prospect of a, of a deal with Saudi Arabia and Israel, you know, regional dynamics have, in the Middle East have, have been you know, fairly transactional for a, a number of years but particularly under the Trump administration. And I'd say in the case of Saudi Arabia, really it's a question of, you know, to what extent do they need to, you know, risk uh, alienating a section of their own population and indeed imperiling their, their leadership of, or claimed leadership of, of the Muslim world by, you know, recognizing Israel, if indeed they can uh, get access to, to the kind of, um, say, tech support that you were talking about a moment ago. Um, without actually needing to, to go through that. Um, you know, we've, we've seen over the course of the last year that the Saudi government has agreed a cybersecurity contract with um, an Israeli tech firm to provide services in uh, Neon, which is the new city that's being built in northern Saudi Arabia as part of Mohammed bin Salman's um, Vision 2030 project. So it's really a question you know, as to whether or not these types of regional dynamics will change. It's really a question of whether or not the benefits outweigh the costs um, for you know states like um, Saudi Arabia. So uh, at the moment, I'm uncertain of where that um, balance lies because I'm uncertain of who the next U.S. president is going to be. You know, if um, there is a, a, a swing against the direction that things currently look like they're, they're going in as we speak on Thursday uh, afternoon, and Trump does prevail, when then you know Saudi Arabia's calculations may differ and. The, given that how close they've been with the Trump White House over the course of the last four years, it, it may well be in their favour or perceived to be in their favour to go ahead and, and commit to some kind of um, recognition of Israel. Uh, and that will obviously be a momentous step for both both countries as well as the US for, for brokering it. So, um, But in the, the, you know, in the alternate scenario that Biden wins, actually Saudi Arabia can still get most of what it wants from Israel, either directly um, using sort of you know, covert deals as the the one that I was describing before about uh, NEOM, uh, or indeed, you know, via funneling, you know, um, funds via the UAE, which now has a relationship with Israel and, and you know, effectively bypass its own um, lack of formal ties in order to enjoy the benefits of, of investing in, in Israel as a market. So, yeah, well, obviously with, with Biden not offering the same political advantages that a Trump uh, administration might do. So, yeah, these, these kind of like uh, transactional calculations are still very much going to be a part of, of regional dynamics. As for, you know, issues touching on, you know, wider tensions such as those between Turkey and Qatar, I think I'll probably uh, let Eloise speak on that since she's probably a better place to do so. Yeah, thank you, Phil. That was, um, yeah, it's a really good point. I think that's something that, that we're going to be watching quite closely. We've seen the sort of Turkey-Qatar axis feeding into quite a lot of regional developments recently, including the tensions with France over its depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. But the Turkey-Qatar axis here is quite interesting because Turkey has obviously been highly critical of the deals made with, made with Israel. And we've seen that Turkish relations with Saudi Arabia are deteriorating 
um, largely over ideological reasons impacting trade. So I think one thing that will be uh, certainly something to watch is how in the coming years, access to certain technology in the arms industry of the US puts states such as Turkey at slightly more of a disadvantage and how, the, and how Turkey in particular reacts to that. We've seen Turkey becoming increasingly aggressive in a number of theatres. So I think um, certainly if more states come out and normalise relations with Israel, Turkey is, is likely to act increasingly aggressively. And we've already seen, as I said, these deteriorations in relations with uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. But I think what um, I didn't mention this earlier, but Qatar is another country that's been potentially touted as, a, as another country that will normalise relations with Israel. I think at the moment, the Turkey-Qatar axis is unlikely to change and Qatar knows that that would be a hugely controversial thing to do given um, Turkey's support for it during the blockade. But that certainly is a dynamic worth watching given that this, these tensions in the Gulf um, around the blockade of Qatar are increasingly feeding into a number of, of regional and international developments. And what about the domestic implications there for, for, for Israel? And I guess we haven't talked at length about the Palestinians, who are obviously the people that probably feel most in the middle of all this, right? Yes, I think, again, the domestic implications for Israel are fundamental. But I think, obviously, these um, Abraham Accords have been hugely valuable for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is um, currently facing quite a few challenges, not least with his uh, concerns over his um, legitimate rule. He's obviously due to face a corruption trial that's restarting in January on three counts of corruption. Um, and his handling of the pandemic and the economic fallout has been highly criticised. And we've seen weekly protests for months now that have, have really grown in, in, in scope and size, despite his best attempts to, to prevent unrest. But obviously, the, the, on the face of it, there are major foreigners been able to sideline the, Palestine, the Palestinian issue, although obviously he has shelved plans to, to annex a West Bank settlement. So this could create some further difficulty for him with right wing and orthodox sections of society. So, yeah, as I alluded to, there are obviously um, bigger issues at play, I think, domestically for Israel that these normalisation deals won't be able to completely cover over. Yeah, I mean, thanks, Eloise. It's, it's very easy to see these as obviously a, a continuation of a, a policy that Benjamin Netanyahu has sought to, to pursue in his now 10 years in power, which is effectively to portray himself as a, a statesman, which he's done extremely effectively on the international stage. And this is effectively the payoff for, for some of that groundwork while building ties behind the scenes with the Gulf states, um, which then, you know, Netanyahu, ever the opportunist, has been able to turn into these kind of formal deals with the assistance of, of the Trump White House. So, you know, there are huge benefits, uh, or there would be if it were not for the pandemic, there would be huge benefits for Benjamin Netanyahu's personal brand and the particular style of, of leadership that he's tried to offer Israel over the course of, of the last decade. Um, but as Eloise rightly says, you know, the, the potential benefits from the Abraham Accords are, you know, from what we've seen of Israeli public opinion, negligible in comparison to his mishandling of the pandemic, which, um, as those of you who followed um, the situation in Israel will know, led to initially an extremely stringent lockdown, and then that lockdown being lifted uh, almost overnight back in May. Netanyahu made the mistake of encouraging people to go out and make the most of uh, the fact that they were no longer cooped up at home and then subsequently infection rates shot up and he had to impose a second lockdown in mid-September, you know, shortly after um, the sort of you know, public relations coups that were represented in the, the Abraham Accords. So yeah, for, for Netanyahu personally, this is, this is on brand, albeit a little bit late, I think, for him to salvage what's left of his credibility prior to going to the polls next year, which it looks like he will do. So again, for, for those of you who are, are not aware, Benjamin Netanyahu entered a coalition with uh, Benny Gantz, his, his main rival, after the third election in 11 months um, back in April. Um, and as part of the coalition agreement, Netanyahu was agreed to hand over the premiership to Gantz um, in autumn 2021. Uh, and at the moment, um, Netanyahu has given every impression that he's not going to allow this to happen and that he will call, uh, you know, seek another election before that time. Um, he was tempted to do it sort of a couple of months ago before the need for the second lockdown came in, which torpedoed his popularity again. But it's certainly possible that he will effectively pick a fight over something like the budget, um, for example, and, and send the country back to the polls so that he doesn't have to relinquish power and you know, gets another chance to 
build a, a functioning coalition. Um, and I think these kind of foreign, foreign policy issues will play into that. You know, Netanyahu will, will continue to seek um, some kind of uh, a policy coup prior to calling the polls, which he'll do sometime in the next nine months, probably when he judges the situation to, to be sufficiently beneficial to him. And obviously, you know, a calculation within that will be who the next president will be. Um, there's no, it's no secret that Netanyahu would, would love Trump to be re-elected. And so how um, aggressively he pursues um, new relationships with Arab states will, will depend on, you know, whether or not Biden stays on course for, uh, for a victory in the next week. But yeah, I mean, it, there's, there's lots at stake for, for Netanyahu politically uh, and for Israel more broadly. Uh, as I said, I don't think that it's not that Biden will necessarily avoid pursuing um, brokering new bilateral deals like Trump has. It's more that he will expect more from Netanyahu in terms of offers to the Palestinians, which Netanyahu himself will, un will, will likely be unwilling to make prior to an election. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to discuss, uh, I, I think, probably next time or on another occasion ahead of what looks to be, you know, the fourth Israeli election in, in a couple of years. And that's right, Phil. I think we've talked about Netanyahu's troubles so for as long as we've talked about Benjamin Netanyahu full stop, haven't we? So to some extent, he does always seem to, to keep moving forwards despite all these challenges. And I guess, again, though, for the Palestinians, I mean, are they going to feel abandoned by this? Yeah, you know, the extent of their um, dissatisfaction was pretty clear uh, when shortly after the Abraham Accords, there was a joint summit between leaders of, of uh, Fatah and Hamas in Lebanon, which is something that had not happened for a very long time. So, uh, but I think is, again, without wanting to send this into a discussion of Benjamin Netanyahu, you, you have to accept that the reason why he's been successful over the last 10 years is his ability to allow the Israeli people to effectively forget about Palestine and concentrate on being a, a comparatively normal nation um, and building ties with the outside world is, is a part of that. So I, I don't think there's a great deal of, of public appetite in Israel to make any more concessions to, to the Palestinians than is absolutely necessary. Uh, and these kind of accords over the last couple of months have shown that actually there might be a route for uh, Israel to kind of grow into a relatively normal and functioning state on, on the international stage without having to address to address the, um, you know, the in, intractable concern of, of you know, what to do about the occupation of the West Bank, for example. But yes, I mean, in the short term for the Palestinians, it looks pretty bleak. Um, you know, the combination of a series of diplomatic victories for Israel, um, a lack of support from, um, you know, the regional power brokers, whether it be Saudi Arabia or, or the UAE, um, albeit Turkey's been vocal in their support, but Turkey itself has, has become something of a pariah in the region. So, yeah, it, it doesn't look promising, um, you know, for the next, you know, however many years that, that, Palestine, that Palestinians will see any meaningful attempt by either Tel Aviv or, or Washington to address some of their more substantive concerns. Right, that's something that probably they'll therefore lead to at least a rise in, a rise in risk, uh, I guess, around the Palestinians over, over the coming months. I'm sure that's a topic we'll come back and address again. Phil, Eloise, thank you so much for joining us. I know obviously it's a, a very busy week and a busy month, but uh, great to get your perspective on the region and what's going on and much appreciated. Hope to have you back again soon. Thanks. Right, thank you very much. So moving on, the second topic we want to look at this week is China's new socio-economic strategy and the implications for cybersecurity in particular. And as I mentioned in the introduction, this is an issue that we think is of significant note for uh, businesses operating both in China and indeed worldwide, especially in emerging uh, industries and emerging technology. So the most senior members of the Chinese Communist Party discussed the country's long-term development strategy at a recent uh, closed-door conference. So though the new 14th five-year plan has not yet been fully published, a communique released at the conclusion of the meeting revealed key policy objectives and priorities for the next five years and beyond. As widely expected, this new strategy revolves around a dual circulation system of development with a focus on boosting internal circulation for the domestic economy. The top priority will be building up self-reliance in the tech industry, particularly China's capacity to manufacture advanced semiconductors. The guidelines release also stress that China will still be open to the global economy, with the finance minister in particular emphasising that decoupling from the US was neither feasible nor desirable. 
And joining us to discuss this uh, are Hugo Yu and Hans Horan, uh, both from our team. And Hugo, of course, lead analyst uh, for the region and notable China expert. And Hugo, great to have uh, you with us. And Hans, I think you're going to look at some of the cyber pieces. So, Hugo, I'm going to start with you. I mean, can you explain a bit more on this dual circulation model, you know, and why Chinese government is starting to put an emphasis on the domestic economy and self-reliance? Oh, hi, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks uh, for the uh, introduction. So, dual circulation sounds like a medical term, doesn't it? I mean, um, you know, all jokes aside, I think medicine, believe it or not, is is one of the key um, industry under this strategy. So the whole thing, dual circulation, is a dual is a uh, two pronged strategy with a emphasis on boosting domestic capacity and demand, while it's at the same time seeking opportunity and developing conditions to facilitate further business, uh, foreign business and foreign investment and trade whenever and wherever is possible. Now, this is. The whole concept is uh, uh, evaluation rather than uh, a a revolutionary concept uh, because it's a continuation of um, the government's attempts to rebalancing its economy so that domestic demand, i.e. consumption, and and innovation would become a main driver of growth rather Mm -hmm. than investment and export-oriented manufacturing. So for, for the past three or four decades ever since they opened up. The Chinese economy has experienced tremendous growth um, and, and, and fast uh, development. Um, but a lot of this is, is built on the basis of, um, you know, being the factory of the world, churning out, you know, uh, t-shirts and shoes and, and to mobile phones and, and, and cars. So this, this model, as China become uh, uh, richer, and um, um, since become more expensive, especially labor and material costs, um, the, the cutting edge, the advantage edge is become much, much no narrower for perhaps for the um, you know, low end manufacturing compared to the regional peers. For example, in Southeast Asia, uh, East Asia there's many emerging markets are much better positioned for business to set up uh, outsource factories there. Um, so that's a continuation, and the and the timing of bringing this strategy into the forefront is is also uh, very much related to uh, basically the backdrop of the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, and also um, the subsequent hostile geopolitical climate against Beijing, which has not really not only hit the uh, Chinese uh, economy pretty badly, but also has uh, really exposed uh, vulnerabilities and shortcomings of the economics uh, reliance on foreign tech uh, tech and supply chains and indeed external demands. So in a way, the the pandemic and its impact has really brought urgency for the Chinese government to look at ways to strengthen its uh, resilience uh, against the global uh, headwinds and external shocks. And Beijing hopes uh, by boosting its uh, domestic part of the economy will add of a, a very good buffer going forward. Yeah, and as you say, not a, not a new strategy, but I guess the elucidation of it so clearly is is probably a new development over the last five-year plan. And, and I, I guess that's not an uh, entire coincidence of timing if you think that we had uh, obviously a last major election in 2016 in the US and and that maybe changed uh, the course of relations publicly a little bit. But I guess you say something's been going on for a while. And you mentioned medicine and a couple of other industries. We talked about semiconductor manufacturers in the past and obviously a lot of fuss about access to technology increasingly uh, for the Chinese uh, from the US in particular. But what part of the economy in China or which industries are going to receive the strongest backing from the government as they're trying to grow up into what I think they've described as a mid-level advanced country? in uh, the period between now and 2035? Yeah, so um, if you look at the, um, basically the documents release, I mean, the, the, develop, the new development strategy puts a scientific innovation, you know, at front and center of, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the list of priorities. So it's really sort of, it's fair to assume that industries associated with ad- advanced uh, uh, science and technology, like like you mentioned, medicine, 
semiconductors, artificial intelligence, telecommunications, space and ocean, ocean exploration. These industries would be, as we expected, uh, receive the, the most uh, policy backings from the government, and the government would double down to develop uh, indigenous uh, uh, technology, uh, driving the growth and innovation. And, and particularly those choke, what they call choke point sectors. Um, you mentioned semiconductors, you know, there's been a whole, you know, role uh, of, you know, basically US suppression of Chinese tech companies, handing out sanctions, um, banning US, uh, Chinese co companies access of US technology in semiconductors, integrated circuits, and that really sort of hampered even the, the big tech giant like Huawei and other, a few others to, to access materials and components that is needed for its cutting edge products. Um, so that definitely semiconductors is one, the choke point being you know, most broke about. But let's not forget, oh, there's also energy. You know, over 80% of Chinese oil and 40% of gas consumption are comes from imports. So, so it's key for, for also for China. I mean, the, 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 the structure will, be, will take time to, to change because one cannot to boost domestic exploration, domestic energy production overnight. And, and so one of the key things is uh, the Chinese government has been uh, doing, um, and again, this is nothing new in the past 12 months, um, but, uh, and, and perhaps the, uh, the pandemic brought a much more urgency behind, a much more political impotence behind it, is, is to look to diversify its supply chain. Uh, and, and that's very, very important for energy shipments, because if, you, if Beijing's hitting up uh, a war against um, you know, certain Western governments and facing uh, a suppression, facing pressure uh, on the international stage. And, 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 and if they only rely on one or two supply chains, then uh, the energy shipment, critical energy shipment may be you know, restricted or blocked or, or, or indeed uh, causing significant imp uh, adversary impact to the domestic uh, economy and production. So diversifying supply chain is another key pillar being sort of uh, uh, emphasized in the new strategy. Again, looking at the long term, um, the blueprint, one, need to, one needs to consider that the, the five-year plan is a part of, uh, is part of the, uh, the new vision 2035, which would come together with the five-year plan. And, uh, and that's, a, uh, that's a further sort of a longer term uh, development blueprint for the Chinese economy as the CCP looks to achieve uh, uh, its second centenary goal uh, in 2049, which is uh, make China into a modern socialist country and, tw and 2049 tags with the centenary anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. Yeah, I think that highlights one of the things you and I have often discussed, which is the difference in worldview sometimes and the ability to plan ahead of particularly Russia and China, and China, I think, way more than Russia, uh, in terms of having plans for 2049. I think if you compare it with where we're currently sitting and looking at Western democracy, it's a bit of a different view, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it is, because the Western think... democracy, that, that, that uh, I mean, in China, uh, the government doesn't face uh, electoral circles, only leadership transitions. But now, even now, on the Xi, that, that has been sort of, uh, that could be sort of uh, abandoned and, and he could be uh, president for life. Mm. Yeah, as long as he keeps doing a good job, of course, I guess it's, uh, it's not, certainly not without its political tussles, is it? Of course, no. they just take place uh, more out of public view. Well, there's another interesting point here. So you know, what does this mean for foreign businesses and investors? Because it doesn't sound like you know, China shutting itself off from the world, you know, as maybe once was the case, does it? It's a focus on internal circulation, but that is that that's not an inward-looking China, though, is it? No, definitely not. I think it, it's all come. You know, one has to keep uh, reminding oneself about the uh, geopolitical back backdrop at at the time of which uh, this strategy is being brought out, being introduced, uh, being put at the center. Uh, you know, China's facing enormous pressure at the moment. 
uh, since the COVID pandemic and, you know, questions and um, accusation of uh, its handling of the initial pandemic and indeed also its uh, assertive foreign policy uh, agenda that won't be viewed any favor uh, favorably by many, many countries around the world. Um, so that, that's perhaps now there's a more emphasis on boosting the capacity and capability and indeed self-sufficiency of the domestic economy. So it acts as a buffer because the, the, uh, the global headwinds and economic shocks uh, possibility is really high at the moment. But that's not to say, as you said, uh, neglect uh, the need for foreign investment. Uh, China would continue, I think, for the key, uh, for the key sectors we mentioned above, you know, those sectors, China will look still looking for uh, encouraging foreign investments, especially in high-end manufacturing, especially uh, with regard to research and development. So things like technology, energy, uh, agriculture sectors, um, you know, medicine, life science, uh, space, and those, those, all these critical sectors, whenever and wherever possible, those are two, two key words now. Um, China will look uh, to absorb and, um, you know, uh, setting up cooperative projects with uh, Western companies and Western government. And so that it could speed up um, the, the, the development. Um, another area which um, we should not forget is green, uh, green sectors, uh, because, uh, you know, it, uh, another key component in the uh, new development plan is the low carbon economy and sustainable uh, development. Uh, because um, like, for example, in, in September this year, Xi, Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping made a very bold pledge uh, to have uh, the CO2 emissions peaked for the country before 2030, and, and then achieve uh, carbon neutrality before 2060. And uh, underscoring Chinese government's um, ambitious plan to on, on its climate change policy and, uh, and, and strengthen uh, environmental protection. So any companies and business and sectors with strong environmental credentials that likely to be viewed favorably by Beijing and, and, and there will be, we think, a lot more investment opportunities for uh, foreign companies working in that field. Uh, and, and, and indeed, um, by uh, advocating climate change policies, by pushing through a low carbon uh, agenda, politically, Beijing also hope to regain some lost reputation on yeah. the international stage. And it's been very, I mean, active. I think you know, the tree planting initiatives, for example, in, yeah. in China have been quite phenomenal. Uh, and obviously there are multiple reasons for it. Deforestation uh, was affecting I think soil quality and and again soil uh, stability and things like that in many regions as we all know but it, it's been a benefit i guess the green policies you mentioned are the same partly because they need the energy security and actually alternative energy is is important and of course I mean, not to mention the horrendous horrendous environmental conditions around beijing sometimes which i'm, I'm mm. in and which has been improved markedly uh in the past three years um so again a reflection of uh, how serious the the, the, uh, the government actually is actually taking uh, of this issue. Uh, it it becomes environmental policy, it becomes one of the key priorities now. Well, as, as, as was before, uh, it's all about the speed of um, you know, growth and development. And, and also, you know, speaking of which, it's interesting to see, to see the, new, uh, the new document, the new strategy made no mention about how fast the economy has to go. Right. So it focuses on the, yeah, and that is a departure from previous plans. Yeah. Uh, focus on the quality rather than quantity and speed. Yeah. And it used to be more that way. It's funny because I remember that hybrid battery technology was on a plan a number of years ago. And pretty much as soon as that happened, uh, the following day, I think the hacking started against uh, companies that were working in, in the sectors identified. So I want to bring hands in uh, to talk a bit further. Now. I mean, the, in what ways does cybersecurity and indeed China's own pretty good cyber capabilities relate to the new five-year plan. Are we going to see an extension of that trend that I've certainly seen in the past of, uh, of hacking to try and target these areas, or is it going to be different? Hi, Justin. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys did kind of the nail on the head when you were discussing this. It's not going to necessarily be a new plan in terms of China and its cybersecurity development or its capabilities. It's very much going to be 
a continuation of what's been going on. And as Hugo kind of rightly said, uh, made it so the China Standard 2035 plan and the more notorious Made in China 2025 plan very much are going to be in the forefront of this new five-year plan and very much kind of a progression of these plans. So as kind of seen with the Made in China 2025 plan, corporate espionage, cyber espionage, uh, if you will, will be at the forefront of how China and Chinese companies and their their quote-unquote technological champions are going to develop their capabilities in this upcoming plan and in the upcoming years. So we've very much seen Chinese groups, Chinese state-sponsored groups such as Black Tech, for instance, very much kind of increase their activity in the last couple of years and targeting these sectors of interest, if you will, so high technology, but not only high technology, low technology, so things that may be more obscure to people than you would think, for instance, the targeting of uh, intellectual property for the inside of soda cans, things that have to do with green technology, things that have to do with defense, things that may not be the initial thought when you think of China's development plan, but things that very much help Beijing improve its domestic economy and kind of lessen its, its dependence on imports. So interesting enough, early this year, before COVID happened, before any of the, the when we were in kind of in the heat of the, the big trade war between the U.S. And, and China, when we were you know, that was the big news at the time. Uh, a former industry and information technology minister, Li uh, Shishong, he basically said that he that China wants to have improve its domestic production by 40% by 2020 and then by 75% by 2025. And that very much kind of like highlighted to me what that, that this is an extension of what they've been doing. And this very much does sound like what they kind of outlined in the new five-year plan that was just announced. Uh, it's just very much increasing their domestic production, not only to better pr for, for the domestic economy to be better itself, but also for them to have a better chance of competing internationally, of course. And as I said, cyber will be kind of the, the way that they can do this in a very unfair environment, that at least what Beijing feels is a very unfair environment when you look at things that are going on with Huawei, um, with and other type of Chinese technology companies that are very much being as Beijing would, would, would portray it, persecuted by Western organizations and Western company, uh, countries. Uh, so they very much have to use these more illicit means to um, have and try and find new ways to develop, and not only that, but to get new technology. And uh, this new technology that they're going to try to find are probably going to be intellectual property, things that they can use to help improve their manufacturing capabilities, to improve incrementally uh, the technology itself so that it can be more competitive in the market so they can market it better so they can kind of show themselves that this as a technological hub uh, not only within Asia but also within the world. You know and that's an interesting point that actually in a way the more, although we, we're complaining I think more about uh, Chinese IP theft and we talk about espionage much more and of course it's, it's much more complex than cyber isn't it I know there are certainly uh, but numerous examples of Chinese human operations uh, targeting uh, the tech sector in the US, for example, you know, very systematic uh, penetration of universities, very systematic and deliberate. Um, I guess it's not just China, you know, it is that whole espionage problem, isn't it? But you're saying to some extent they feel, well, you might be pointing it out more, but we feel more and more justified in doing this sort of activity because, you know, you're starting to push us out of other, other channels. So actually we're going to double down. Is that a fair view? Oh, very much so. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the corporate espionage part, the more kind of the, the, the less focused on human aspect of China's kind of uh, corporate espionage uh, operations, because it very much is also one of those things that is going to increase along with its cyber, with its cyber attacks and its kind of its cyber espionage uh, abilities. It very much is um, at the forefront of Beijing's plans right now, where they're not going to, they're going to have these in combination with each other, where it's not just cyber attacks also going to be the more, which is probably the, the, the more dominant form of their espionage is the corporate espionage. It's the idea that they're sending these operatives out into companies, be it fresh graduates, be it more experienced uh, individuals in the field to these Western companies to try and take back or steal technology to bring back to Beijing. But also kind of a, a more, I would say a more, a more prominent version is that what, they'll do, what these companies will do is that they'll try and make deals with Western employees within these companies to basically lure them away from what the company that they are currently and then bring their, their secrets with them, bring their, their technology and their, and their tactics with them and then bring it back to these Beijing companies, bring it back to, to Beijing, bring it back to these Chinese companies to help develop their, their technology further. 
So that's very much going to increase along with the cyber aspect. And uh, you're rightfully pointed out that that's something that's going to uh, remain in the forefront in the next coming five, ten years. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing because a lot of this hacking, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of business, seen as part of business, I think, by some Chinese companies that I've dealt with in the past. And I certainly know Chinese companies are complained of hacking by other Chinese companies who are trying to steal an advantage off them um, to fulfill a contract and things like that. So I think it seems to be, you know, it's, it's a part of doing business to a certain extent. And uh, that extension you made of saying, well, actually, if we can't, if we can't steal it, if we can't find it lying around, we'll just hire the people that have the know-how is, I think, potentially quite overlooked. Obviously, I imagine there'll be some challenges to that in those much more confidential areas, but it's, yeah, there's an interesting example there of, of brain drain, isn't there, with people who've been working on these projects and being brought back to China to, to apply that know-how, and I guess that's almost as important as stealing the secrets. I, I certainly not considered that as much. I mean, so given all of this, and it's particularly the tensions between the US and China over corporate espionage, IP theft, and, and all of this other stuff, uh, the classic question we've been asking all the way through this webinar, what will... What will change as a result of the U.S. elections? That is that is the golden question, and there's a couple scenarios you can kind of run through depending on uh, who is who, who will win the election. As of right now, it looks like Biden will win the election, or I don't want to make any predictions necessarily, but it looks like he's closer than Trump is at the moment, uh, and that presents an interesting, an interesting question to Beijing of what do we do with our espionage activity. Uh, under, under, under Obama, we saw a remarkable decline of Chinese espionage activity, uh, cyber attacks especially, to the extent where it was very much kind of, where it was questionable whether or not they were, whether or not this was going to continue to be uh, an important part of their plan. And under, under Trump and kind of the renewed heightened tensions that, that Trump brought with his presidency, we've seen uh, just skyrocket in the last couple of years. So... Under, under a Biden presidency, there is the possibility of there being a reduced, reduced tensions and with these reduced tensions, a slight decline in cyber espionage activities targeted against US and other Western businesses. But at the same time, you cannot completely ignore the fact that they're going to remain in the a tactics that's used by, by Beijing and especially against companies that are operating in, in China itself. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, if we look at a, a Trump re-election, I, I very much predict, I expect a, um, a, a continuation of what we're seeing, not just a continuation, I, I expect an escalation mm -hmm. of, of cyber attacks and espionage operations and corporate espionage and IP theft in the, in the next five to 10 years, or at least under a Trump presidency. And those will very much be kind of a reflection of the heightened tensions that are ongoing between Washington and Beijing and very much kind of the, the increased persecution of companies such as Huawei and their, their, uh, and Washington's increased efforts to try and reduce their market entry capabilities into country, into not only the U S but also Western allies, uh, be it countries like the UK, who recently said that they were going to deny Huawei access to their 5G infrastructure, or other countries that have done the same. Australia. Uh, I, Australia. Exactly. Yeah. And the Netherlands is also saying that they're um, considering a country who is known to keep the political in, on, on the back burner and not try and make big, grand political statements of also that they're trying to reconsider their Huawei 5G deals. Uh, at the moment so it, it kind of shows how high the tensions are right now at the moment with with china and kind of its its cyber capabilities and kind of what a trump presidency will likely do if, if he's re-elected you know it's fascinating i think i was working um, a number of years ago with a professor of ip uh some people consulting on ip and you know we brought up the china issue and he said actually china was was trying quite hard between 2008 and obviously the olympics you know portraying themselves a responsible world player wanting to be taken as a reliable partner, uh, beginning to recognize the advantage, I think, of exporting its technology and so on. Um, and between sort of 2008, 2016, huge steps into intellectual property safeguards. And funny enough, they complained that a number of Western businesses weren't taking advantage of the actual quite strict enforcement of IP by courts that were starting to increase. Now, I, I think in the areas of most important national security things, that was, that was a bit different, of course. Um, and one could argue that many states would engage in that sort of activity other than the five eyes anyway. You know, the only the only countries in the world that don't spy on each other. So I suppose that's not entirely surprising. But it, yeah, it does. I, I was surprised to hear what you said about actually the change, therefore, in, in cyber activity and the trend. But I guess it, it doesn't surprise me when I think about it. 
and of course that trust uh, overstating the word trust i guess but that trust and effort to come up alongside has kind of faded in, in you know once they've seen the wheel turn i suppose and uh, and it's forced them on this slightly different and i guess more confrontational course from what both you and and hugo were saying so i think that's a that's an interesting conclusion and actually arguably whoever wins the election it's not going to change the course with regard to china because the chinese are taking a view of 2049 they've learned that actually they couldn't take a view from 2015 to 2020 without suffering some changes on the way and i imagine that lesson sunk in quite hard but thank you both very much for that most interesting discussion therefore on that topic and i'm sure again china and the us is something we'll be revisiting certainly in our annual forecast and i am sure in future editions of the podcast so uh, dr hugo Yu, hans haran thank you very much for joining us thank you for having us thank you And so as usual, we're going to finish off by having a look at uh, the week ahead. And obviously, if we talked about it being a tumultuous week last week, uh, I think there's probably quite a lot still on our radar to come. So uh, joining us is Amy Reynolds. Amy, thanks for thanks for joining, um, especially in the middle of fireworks night and all the other fun and games going on as we're recording this uh, in the UK. So uh, uh, much appreciated. What's on the team's radar? I guess, first of all, the US election has got to be there, hasn't it? Great. Yes, thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Well, indeed, yes, the US election at the time of recording this, um, you know, we're getting there, but the outcome still isn't quite clear. Um, and I think, you know, really the closeness of the race and the challenges that President Trump is making are certainly serving to kind of further stir up tensions between the two sides of the political spectrum. And while the protests that we've seen so far have been, you know, largely peaceful, um, there's definitely still potential for these tensions to spill over into violence, the risk of which will likely be exacerbated if President Trump decides to contest the final outcome. You know, I think, I think the fact that the turnout for this election was so high really underscores how deeply invested people feel in this contest against the backdrop of extremely elevated societal tensions, you know, that we've seen in the US in recent months. And I think there's certainly still potential for, for fringe elements to exploit this. Um, so this will definitely be, yeah, you know, the key space to watch going into next week, for sure. Yeah, I know we're looking at both the left wing and the right wing and probably left wing more chance of low level acts. And uh, um, uh, obviously the, the fringe element, as you say, is always in, always present in large protests, uh, I think. And we've seen a little bit of activity by them. Uh, and of course, potentially the more focused and, and deep threat uh, posed by the right wing in terms of the complexity of things that, that could be mounted. So certainly... Yeah, obviously a lot to do, a lot to do and have that spotlight uh, firmly on the US. But what else is going on in the world that we might otherwise miss while we're focusing on this and, of course, COVID, that ever-present menace? Yeah, absolutely. Well, continuing on, on you know, the theme of elections, it's, it's actually not just the US, um, <laughs> despite the way it may seem. We've actually got a couple more that we'll be keeping an eye on over the next week as well. So there's a parliamentary vote um, in Jordan on the 10th of November. Um, and while we might see some associated and, and kind of relatively low-level disruption there on polling day itself, um, down the line we expect that a, a stable government and a stable policy environment in the country will prevail. Um, there's also then a runoff for the Moldovan presidential race coming up on the 15th of November, um, which we see as more likely to be a, a bit of a flashpoint for unrest. So not a million miles away from the US, it's a pretty deeply divided uh, political climate in Moldova at the moment. Essentially, we have a pro-West candidate who's looking to unseat the incumbent president, who's very kind of Russia-leaning. Um, and it seems that electoral irregularities are likely, which could certainly then serve to drive unrest following the vote, with the pro-West candidate actually warning of, of kind of Belarus-style um, mass street protests. So it's kind of still uncertain at this stage whether or not this will actually be the case, but we certain, certainly wouldn't sort of rule out the possibility depending on how things go. So that's, yeah, definitely another area that we're going to be watching quite closely. Well, that's an area we covered with Leona in the last podcast, was looking at the, that problem on Russia's periphery. And I guess we should still point out to everyone that there is a war going on in, over Nagorno-Karabakh, which is getting increasingly unpleasant and destructive. And, and obviously has regional uh, consequences, especially given the different power brokers who are 
associated with the two different sides there. So a little bit more trouble on the uh, on Russia's periphery from the sound of it. But what else do we have to look out for? I guess non-election related. Give us some good news. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure that we've got much good news, but there are still a couple of other non-election related notable events that the team are watching out for. Um, so also on Sunday the 15th, it's the, the new de facto deadline for a trade agreement between the EU and the UK, um, which would then allow time for, for ratification before the transition period ends at the end of the year on the 31st of December. Um, and talks are ongoing, um, but you know there's a lot of cause for doubt and uncertainty as to whether or not that the two sides can actually find an agreement. I think it's it's been quite easy to sort of lose sight of Brexit lately with everything else that's going on in the world. But this kind of reminds us that there is that real risk of a no deal situation, um, which would then, of course, you know, cause considerable disruption to supply chains. It would, you know, hinder investment flows and result in higher levels of bureaucracy. Um, and the associated costs um, for UK businesses in particular. Um, so not, not particularly cheery there, but definitely one to keep an eye on. Um, and then lastly, I think one other potential flashpoint worth noting, uh, this time from, from a crossover on the other side of the world. Um, so the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, this week um, formally signed uh, a, a pretty controversial bill called the Omnibus Law on Job Creation. Um, which has been attracting a lot of opposition from labor groups in the country and environmentalists uh, since it was first proposed. And so a major trade union there has announced that they're going to organize nationwide demonstrations against the new law over the 9th and 10th of November. And police will be present at these rallies. Um, you know, there's, there's a decent chance that this could result in clashes. Um, and we expect that the associated disruption there will most likely be concentrated in the major cities and around government buildings in particular. It's also worth noting um, that factory operations in the country could be directly affected by this, of course, as, as workers head out to attend the protests. Great. Thank you, Amy, for those uh, bits and bobs. And for anyone who's expecting a quiet week to come, I think uh, obviously quite a lot still going on around the world. And 2020, obviously far from being over yet, I'm sure has more surprises in store for us. But uh, thanks very much as ever for you and the team uh, passing on those bits that you're looking out for. Oh, you're most welcome.